This episode is brought to you by ABC. Station 19 is back for its final and hottest season yet. Andy finally becomes captain, and she's going to give it her all to be the best leader this station has ever seen. Will she succeed? Get ready for fiery new romances and high adrenaline rescues. Watch the Station 19 season premiere tonight at a new time, 10, 9 central on ABC and stream on Hulu. I'm Janice Dean. I'm David Asman. I'm Dana Perino, and this is the Fox News Rundown. Friday, August 11th, 2023. I'm Jared Halpern. What can and cannot be said by former President Trump about his federal elections case in D.C.? A judge considers that question today. you got to imagine in a case involving a man who's currently running for president, his team has to be really careful this doesn't inflame into an actual gag order because that mm-hmm. would be nearly impossible for, I think, the former president to comply with on the campaign trail. We speak with Fox News Sunday host Shannon Breen. I'm Jessica Rosenthal. You may have seen the videos. Groups of thieves either running from stores with stolen goods or casually filling up a cart with retail items they will not pay for. Either way, it's impacting some major stores and some big cities' bottom lines. There is absolutely no doubt that uh, many of the stores that have closed, for example, in San Francisco, in Portland, Oregon, and in Chicago, that they're closing because of uh, a rise in criminal activity and difficulty making money in these areas. And I'm Tommy Lahren. I've got the final word on the Fox News Rundown. In a case where every decision is without precedent, a big decision looms for the judge presiding over the special counsel's investigation of former President Trump. Attorneys for Trump and federal prosecutors are due in a Washington, D.C. court today to make their cases to Judge Tanya Chutkin over whether a protective order is needed ahead of a trial connected to accusations of trying to overturn the 2020 election. Former President Trump's attorney, John Lauro, argues the request is another attempt to censor political speech of the Republican frontrunner and top challenger to the sitting president, Joe Biden. I personally would love to see that. I'm convinced the Biden administration does not want the American people to see the truth. Um, And they they acted on it by filing this protective order, which is an effort to keep important information about this case from the press. Jack Smith, the special counsel, says some evidence and witness testimony must be protected to prevent harassment or intimidation. They say, listen, material that we're going to turn over in discovery, this is interviews or evidence that you've collected. They don't want the former president to be able to take that and use that discovery material to talk about it, to post about it on social media. Shannon Bream is the anchor of Fox News Sunday and chief legal correspondent for Fox News. You know, in the filing that started this whole thing, they cited that social media post that he had last week. Um, You know, basically, if you go after me, I'm coming after you. And they said, we don't want him to use material that we turn over in discovery to use it to intimidate witnesses or to harm this prosecution. His legal team says they're trying to step on his rights, his ability to speak his mind. This isn't a gag order yet. And they have to be really careful that that's not where they end up. How normal are these types of orders from a judge in a federal case like this? I mean, if you're dealing with conspiracy cases or dealing with cases that maybe deal with national security or witnesses that you're trying to protect from harassment, is this pretty standard fare or is this an unusual ask from from prosecutors? 
Well, as you know, nothing that is happening with his former president well, I hate in all of the usual. legal yeah. ranks. Like, I mean, nothing is normal. Um, I, I wonder if absent that social media post Friday night, if Jack Smith and his team would have so quickly gone to the court to say, like, we need this protective order. They might have anyway, because they know that the former president is out there on the campaign trail. So much of, as you know, and our listeners know, of his stump speech is about these cases, is about mm-hmm. they're wrong and Jack Smith is deranged and all of those kinds of things. So... You know, absent that social media post, maybe this filing would have happened anyway. Um, listen, a federal judge has all kinds of power to say this is a sensitive case or we don't trust how the you know opposing side is going to use this material. And so I'm going to set some boundaries and restrictions on how it can be done. And you got to imagine in a case involving a man who's currently running for president. Um, like I said, his team has to be really careful. This doesn't inflame into an actual gag order because that mm-hmm. would be nearly impossible for, I think, the former president to comply with on the campaign trail. And, and that's the balance here. I think that the judge is going to have to try and reach too, right? She's going to have to take into account that he is running for, for president or does that not factor into a decision like this? I mean, I think I, it has to because it's such a unique situation, but you can also see that this is a judge who is not amused with some of what's going on? Because remember, <laughs> not, this yeah. filing, she is not messing around. This filing from Jack Smith came late Friday night. Um, by Saturday morning, the president, former president's legal team had filed saying, we need more time because the judge had said, you got to answer this by Monday afternoon. They said, we need more time. By Saturday afternoon, she had said, you're not getting more time. I deny your motion <laughs> and I need to hear from you on Monday. So I think she is not going to put up with any kinds of delays or shenanigans. Um, This is, remember, a judge who has said before in ruling against the Trump team on something else related to January 6th, saying, you know, the president is not a king and this guy right now is not even president. So I think um, she's just not going to have a lot of tolerance for anything that deviates from the norms. Here's a question that I have been asked, and I don't know what the answer is, so maybe you do. Um, although, we're again, we're in uncharted waters here, so I understand yes. there's not like precedent that you can go back to and look at case law. But if the judge does issue some sort of um, protective order, right, put some sort of limit on what can or cannot be talked about publicly, and the former president goes ahead and does it anyway, he would be held in contempt? Yeah, I mean, I think his team will immediately appeal it if that happens. So probably while it's on appeal, you know, the former president could get away with something um, if he goes out there and talks about certain things. But again, it's not talking about the case. It's about specific evidence and discovery. Mm -hmm. But if he eventually loses those appeals and a court finds, nope, he has to comply with what the judge is doing, she's going to have a lot of leeway for holding him in contempt. That can mean fines. I mean, I guess you could argue it could mean you know, the threat of going behind bars. I mean, that's the thing. Like, um, like I mean, that that's what I would. I mean, that's like the high end, right? The high end for being held in contempt is you go to jail. Um, yeah. And I, in my I view, honestly, that seems the least likely outcome. But there right. are other sanctions. There are things that happen in um, courts and, and judges who get um, less than excited about somebody violating their orders. But I heard somebody the other day saying, that um, President Trump would actually love it if they threatened to throw him in jail, because as much as he's taken off in the polls and in fundraising because he's out there saying they're coming after you, but they're going to have to come through me and I'm fighting for you. I'm going to D.C. to get arrested for you. Imagine if he was somehow sent to jail. First of all, Secret Service would have to go with him. I mean, it's just such a bizarre thing to contemplate. Yeah, again, that's why I think that's on the, the least likely end. But yeah. 
you know, I mean, what? I guess like you talked about. But I don't fines. know that fines. I mean, I don't know that that would get his attention. Could He's it? Got could it impact the sentence that were handed down post conviction? I don't know. I mean, I think a judge can take a lot of things into account. I don't think pretrial behavior would would factor into sentencing, okay. but it's not going to leave a good taste in her mouth. We know that she has been um, really tough on a lot of January 6th defendants. Mm -hmm. And when it came to their sentencing, she's given jail time, I think, to nearly every person who's come before her. And so she's not got a lot of tolerance for this is this is kind of like the worst possible matchup for President Trump because he likes to push the boundaries. Mm -hmm. And I think he enjoys the fight and he is energized by it. His um, base is fired up by it. So he may enjoy it politically. But the legal side of these cases, that reality is going to be very tough for him. It is a fascinating time. Let me switch gears a little bit to um, a big political story uh, this week in Ohio, which seemed like kind of a boring, routine question that voters were asked to vote on, but I, I think is going to have some pretty big implications moving forward. This uh, Proposition 1, I think it was called in Ohio, which mm -hmm. um, there had been uh, some Republicans in Ohio who wanted to raise the threshold by which mm -hmm. constitutional amendments could be approved by voters. I think now it's a simple majority. This would have required mm -hmm. a 60% majority to add something to the Constitution. Um, opponents said this was a proxy vote on abortion. Is that because we are expecting a big abortion amendment fight in Ohio um, next year? Yeah, I, I think that um, and maybe even sooner. It's interesting because Democrats are a little bit split on the strategy. A lot of the states feel like if we can get an abortion measure on the ballot, it helps Democrats. It would help President mm -hmm. Biden. It would help, you know, all those local and state races because because it's an issue that energizes issue, the base. It yeah. is energizing the left for sure. So it's interesting. I did not know this because I don't follow Ohio state law until this week, but they have amended their state constitution over a hundred times. I mean, this is something that's <laughs> sort of common there in Ohio. Yeah. So, yeah, opponents who want to stop an abortion change to the to the state's constitution there wanted to raise the bar so it would make it harder for people. But honestly, I mean, even if you said, all right, we're going to move it from 50 to 60 percent, you're still inviting those people to show up because now you're mm -hmm. telling them, well, at least 60 percent of the vote has to help you. Does that not even energize it more? But there are some Democrats who worry about this and feel like. There's potential that in certain states this would not work and would not be good for President Biden, would actually hurt him because mm. the more red states, the more pro-life vote shows up and um, it actually backfires on them. But, you know, Ohio is one of those bellwether purple states that's so mm -hmm. important to a presidential election. So a lot of eyes on that vote this week. I mean, it reminds me a little bit of a strategy that was employed back in 2004, right, when there was a strategy by Republicans at that time to see if they could get same-sex marriage bans onto the ballot in an awful lot of swing states to sort of bring up Republican interest, Republican enthusiasm. Is that what we can maybe expect to see play out in the coming months and, and maybe next year in a lot of these swing states that maybe have a little bit more Democratic control right now? Yeah, but it's interesting that even in places like Florida, they're talking about this, which, you know, DeSantis mm -hmm. wins by more than 19 points. It right. feels firmly red at this moment. But there are groups, there are pro-choice groups who are trying to get a measure onto the ballot there that they think will actually help them in the fall. So 
meaning next fall. So I think it's going to be tried in a lot of different states. Listen, in a blue state, you're already probably like, you know, getting this on the ballot in New York is not going to really make a right. huge difference. That's not going to probably tip the scale. New York's mostly going to go blue. Yeah. Um, the rare cases that they don't. Um, but in red states, Democrats feel like this could actually help them. And that's where the warnings are coming from within the their own party, within the Democrat Party. Hey, don't do this in red states if you're not sure that it's going to help, because otherwise you're going to energize the other side of the ticket. And that's really going to hurt President Biden. Is that because this I mean, we've talked a little bit about this, but in the aftermath of the Dobbs decision, the Supreme Court striking down the precedent of Roe v. Wade, it has seemed to shift kind of the political alignment as I think maybe we understood the abortion issue. In mm-hmm. other words, like. There seems to be a little bit more, I don't want to use the term necessarily bipartisanship, but maybe a broader coalition in that pro-choice camp than maybe was thought to have existed prior to to the downfall Mm -hmm. of Roe. Yeah, because you even have more moderate or left of center on some Mm -hmm. issues, Republicans who are out there saying, hey, on this issue, I can't go with my party. In Florida, you've got a six-week ban. And there are some Republicans there who say, even for us, that is too far. So some of them are out there talking about donating money and working with pro-choice groups because they feel like their state has gone too far on this particular issue. So it is an interesting coalition that's been coming together in some of these states where the bans are almost total, or there's a fight over whether you can even get abortion pills through the mail. I mean, in some of these places, um, you know, the more moderate Republicans are saying it's a bridge too far and I'm going to help make sure that women still have access to these things. So I'm going to stand on this particular issue left of center. So it's certainly something that I think pro-life leaders had thought through a lot of this and they knew that after Roe v. Wade was eventually overturned, which they've been working for, you know, mm-hmm. half a century to do that there would now be state battles that would be much more difficult for them. And so you see some of the blue states get bluer, the red states get redder on this particular issue. And it doesn't leave a lot in the middle to fight over. Well, no election is unimportant and no election issue is uh, irrelevant, even if you think it's just a simple question over how are we going to amend the state constitution? We know that it has massive uh, implications both for that state and in the national uh, political conversation as well. Always happy to have that conversation with you, Shannon Bream, the host of Fox News Sunday. Appreciate the time. My pleasure, Jared. This is Tommy Laren with your Fox News commentary coming up. Just this week, Los Angeles police called it a flash mob burglary when as many as 30 people ran out of a Yves St. Laurent store in Glendale at 5 o'clock in the afternoon. Shoppers captured videos of the burglars running out of the store. Look at their arms there, full of merchandise. Police say about $300,000 worth of items were stolen. The suspects escaped in 20 different vehicles. That's Fox 11 Los Angeles anchor Christine Devine. Sometimes it's just one thief, but just as brazen, like this repeat offender yanking cigarettes and packaged food into a trash can on wheels at a 7-Eleven store in Stockton, also in California. One worker held him down while another beat him with a stick. The clerk recording this told them before it got to that point. They're not going to do nothing. 
You just have to just claim you have insurance. The head of the National Retail Federation said recently during a fireside chat, organized retail crime has grown and that last year it cost retailers and communities $95 billion. New York Mayor Eric Adams said after a recent summit, law enforcement, retail partners and prosecutors found many are doing this as part of organized crime. 327 people were responsible for the 22,000 arrests. And remember, those arrests, not Actions. But there's a clear pattern that we talk about all the time of the extreme recidivism that's driving much of what we see in the problems in this, in this city. The CEO of Walmart had warned last winter retailers would close in places with high levels of theft. But in other places like San Francisco, Mayor London Breed explained stores are closing not because of theft. But she said after the pandemic, people changed where and how they shopped and spent time. That for all the talk of stores closing in her town. We didn't hear about Yves Saint Laurent and Chanel expanding their footprint because they've had record sales in Union Square. We didn't hear about Banana Republic and others moving into this corridor of the Union Square area. No one's talking about the fact that IKEA is going to be opening a store on Market Street. This year, Target officials said retail shrink could cost them $500 million, and that shrink number is growing. Well, retail theft is a a considerable and growing problem. Jerry Storch is the CEO of Storch Advisors and the former CEO of Toys R Us. It's especially high in dealing with uh, with goods that can be uh, rapidly monetized, something that can uh, be turned into cash uh, quickly. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it would be things like Tylenol or, or you know, you know, over-the-counter medicines or uh, or you mentioned cigarettes or or something that just is Im- immediately identifiable and a value can put on it rapidly. The second would be uh, high-profile brands particularly luxury goods. So, uh, you know, uh, very high-priced handbags, for example, uh, something along that line. Um, Jerry, shoplifting has always happened, right? But when did it get like this? I mean, we're seeing these videos of massive numbers of people fleeing a store. It seems very coordinated in many instances. Well, in in general, there are a couple of different categories of shrinks. So one is uh, what we call statistical shrinks. So that's that's because of uh, poor record keeping or losing track of inventory. Uh, That's going up because, uh, frankly, uh, retailers have lost control of their inventory in many cases uh, during the uh, pandemic and immediately afterwards. Mm. Shrink by outside parties appears to be going quite significantly, uh, both because uh, of changes in laws enforcing penalties against those who steal as well as the emergence of online marketplaces that have made it more more easy to fence the goods and rapidly turn them into cash. So there's been a lot of uh, factors that have, that have uh, occurred simultaneously to drive both the ease of uh, committing the crime as well as reduce the penalty for committing the crime. And that tends to, uh, like all things in a, mar- in a market, tends to cause an increase in demand for criminal activity. That makes so much sense. I was just, because that leads to my next question, sort of like if you're in D.C., New York, San Francisco, parts of L.A., you see stuff, you know, locked up. You can't just grab it and put it in your cart, right? That's not necessarily the case in like a medium-sized or smaller-sized city in like maybe Ohio or North Carolina. Uh, this seems like to, to sort of be specific to certain areas of the country. Well, it's a pretty draconian measure for retailers to start locking up product, it immediately reduces sales of those products because obviously they aren't as easy for a consumer just to grab and, and put them in their cart and go buy them. So legitimate demand is is significantly decreased once you lock a product away. Uh, one of the running jokes 
among retail operators is people call the assets protection people, who are the people that uh, try to handle this, uh, this shrink problem. People call the asset protection people sales reduction people, because m almost every step taken to reduce theft also decreases uh, accessibility to products by legitimate customers and therefore sales. Dang, yes. I was just going to say there are consequences. But it seems like the consequences are mixed, right? You have like Walmart taking two stores, for example, out of Portland, Oregon. The CEO said they were failing to meet financial expectations. And that same CEO of Walmart said retail thefts that harm companies could result in store closures. Then you hear about, you know, in San Francisco, right, where there are store closures, but the mayor there is saying, well, hold on. It's not because of quality of life issues or retail theft. It's because People are not working in the city like they were. The foot traffic is different. Shopping is different. And plenty of stores are opening up in different parts of the city. Is it both? If stores are closing, could there be competing narratives happening? Well, sure. More than one thing can be true at the same time. But there is absolutely no doubt that uh, many of the stores that have closed, for example, in San Francisco and Portland, Oregon, and in Chicago, that they're closing because of uh, a rise in criminal activity and difficulty making money in these areas. It has always been more difficult to operate stores in inner city, high crime areas. And uh, that's true whether it's a grocery store or uh, you know, or a discount store, any kind of store. It's always more difficult. That's why many of these areas uh, have uh, sort of deserts in them in terms of having uh, chain retail stores, because it's just difficult to make money in those environments. But retailers have persevered and tried in many cases, with often with collaboration from those communities, to open stores in these areas. But, but if you can't make any money, eventually you have to close. And to those people who think, well, they're probably just making it up, well, why would they make it up when it requires writing off a significant capital investment and closing a store? Yeah, I'll get to that article in a second. Um, it, it sounds like also this can be serious, right? There's a Homeland Security official who oversees international organized crime and said a lot of this, or at least some of it, is the work of like drug trafficking rings, like sophisticated criminals organizing this. It's not just high school kids or people looking to feed a drug habit or a one-off. I mean, some of this is very sophisticated. Well, the greater, most people believe that the greater volume of crime is committed by organized retail crime, not by uh, someone who's kind of hungry and steals a loaf of bread like the character in Les Mis or something. You know, and when you look at the categories that are stolen, it, it reinforces that. The categories that are stolen are, are not necessarily the categories that people need for their everyday lives, but the categories instead that can be turned into money really fast and a lot of money. So that, that tends to push you towards the organized crime theory and not the uh, sort of, uh, you know, uh, desperate uh, local theft. There is this article going around. It's citing some anonymous experts who say, actually, some of this claim of external theft may be inflated because, well, your own employees might be stealing from you. And there might be some self-checkout theft. You know, a lot of stores are turning to those self-checkout counters. And it does make you wonder if it's not just only organized retail theft that's the problem here. Like Target saying, you know, this year alone, they're looking at half a billion dollars in shrink, you know, due to lost and stolen merchandise. Is it possible there are some other things going on? Well, sure, Jessica. Again, this is a case where more than one thing can be true at the same time. And as I mentioned earlier in, in our, our interview uh, today, the uh, shrink appears to be rising across all categories, whether that's statistical shrink, again, errors in the accounting systems that are caused by having just a yeah. glut of inventory, losing track of some of it, or whether that's actual criminal activity. In the case of self-checkout, it's interesting because it's a combination of factors. It's both statistical uh, shrink as well as actual people stealing stuff. So, you know, uh, the best, uh, most accurate checkout is done by a trained 
cashier. And if you notice, when you go to the, to the checkout, they don't let you through until they finally, you know, identify the correct price for everything and ring it up. And if they don't have it, what do they do? They call someone to get the right price. When someone's doing self-checkout, they're not quite that assiduous in making sure it's <laughs> exactly priced correctly. They scan it. And if it, if it goes through, great. Uh, if it doesn't, oh, well, maybe they miss some things by accident, in all fairness, to someone doing self-checkout. And also, sometimes I'm pretty sure sometimes people go, you know, I can let a few things slip under the radar here and not scan them and get away with it. So so most people believe that self-checkout does cause an increase and shrink from both statistical errors as well as from actual theft on the part of the person who's doing the self-checkout. Yeah, I wish we had more concrete numbers, but until we get them, I guess. Um, some of the reactions. Well, yeah, in that regard, I just want to point out it's it's a little bit like uh, you know saying we need more con- we want more concrete numbers. It's a little bit like saying uh, someone robbed your house and they, and you want to know exactly what was stolen and how much it was worth. Well, you know you don't always know exactly what was stolen once it's gone, and so that's really the problem uh, here too. Mm-hmm. We know that uh, the product is missing. We don't know how much of it is from uh, employee theft, how much it is from uh, statistical shrink, and how much it is from shrink by outside parties, and how much of the shrink by outside parties from sort of the uh, sort of the, the criminal in the street versus an organized crime. No one, no one can know that because it's unknowable because the product's been stolen, it's gone. <laughs> Some of the reactions to the thefts, though, have been really kind of shocking, right? Like uh, Donna Hansborough in Savannah, Georgia, working at Lowe's. She was fired for trying to stop shoplifters. She grabbed onto their cart. Um, Same with two women at Lululemon. They were told they violated company policy by engaging or getting in the way of shoplifters and they could have been hurt. So is no one supposed to ever try to stop people who are taking stuff? Well, generally speaking, we don't want their retail employees to become vigilantes and to risk their own safety as well as well as uh, the potential for hurting other people by taking the law into their own but hands. But to fire them? Well, I don't know that I'd fire them or not. It depends on the specifics of individual cases. Every one of those situations is very fact-specific. <laughs> Just how far they go, where, what lines did they cross, or what lines did they not cross. So you make those decisions in that manner. But you don't want the employees sort of beating up the cu- you know customers. For example, they could make a mistake and, and go after the wrong person. Mm. Or... You know, even if you go after the right person, what you really want to do is get uh, trained law enforcement and official law enforcement to be the one who who uh, actually captures the criminals, not retail employees. Uh, you know, we care a lot about their safety and we don't want them hurt. If you start having that kind of a world, I think it'd be quite difficult. As much as I as you have to uh, uh, have admiration for a retail employee who goes after the criminal themselves, uh, all well motivated and well intentioned. You can see see the difficulty with vigilanteism. I feel like I'm watching sort of a superhero comic strip or something where they call uh, you know call Spider Man or someone a vigilante. <laughs> Shouldn't be doing that, you know, like that. And you can understand the side that says, you know, that'll help the real cops catch people, not go out and catch them themselves. Do you hear from people then, I guess finally is my last question, uh, you know, is hiring security too costly or is there too much of a liability? Like what what are you hearing from retailers in terms of a solution to this that that they'd like to see or that they're sort of talking about or, or, you know, discussing as a possible solution? I imagine for some hiring security is just too expensive. Well, retailers do hire a lot of security in stores, and on top of that, just the cost of the of the you know locking things up, putting sensors on. I was in, in a, a cosmetic store today, for example. I spent a lot of time walking retail stores, and I noticed how many of the products had sensors on the back of them, so that uh, someone left the store, it makes loud noises and make it difficult to get out. So, so retailers spend a, a lot of money trying to prevent theft, and again, the difficulty is almost everything that you do. 
as a retail revenge theft also lowers sales. So it's a it's a, it's quite a conflict as you go about trying to deal with. It. But people do hire security guards. Yet again, the issue is: do security guards actually go out and sort of you know try to capture the the, the crooks, or do they try to get the uh, get the the real police uh, to to accomplish that objective? And generally speaking, we, we want the real police doing their jobs and and taking care of crime. Jerry Storch of Storch Advisors, thanks so much for joining us. My pleasure. And now, some good news with Tanya J. Powers. Michael Orr isn't only known for being an NFL Super Bowl champion or for his story, which was the basis for the movie The Blind Side. He's also a New York Times best-selling author. And in his second book, When Your Back's Against the Wall, he not only talks about overcoming adversity in his life, but also gives readers a playbook for doing the same. Michael's hit a few walls in his past, including homelessness, poverty, brain injury, and depression, to name a few. But he says your wall can be your opportunity. Heal yourself first is one of the ideas he puts forth in the book and says dealing with past traumas is the key to moving forward. The world teaches us to be so strong, especially, I, that's the way I had to be. You're balling everything up, and you're dealing with trauma, you're dealing with uh, being in the positions that you don't want to be in, that you shouldn't be in because you didn't ask to be there. So it's a lot of, it's a lot of wear and tear on you mentally and before you know it you're exploding and healing yourself first is understanding that a hurt man doesn't hurt anyone uh even a you know tough football player another piece of advice use what you got you know what's right from wrong early on and your mind is the the most powerful tool in the world so whatever you wanted to do whatever you want to be you can put it in there you can think it uh, it can happen. You have to, you have to plan it. You have to be consistent. Develop a routine before it all can be tangible. But mm-hmm. if you're thinking 100 percent capacity, 100 percent physically, it shouldn't be a problem. You have everything, every tool that you need. Michael and his wife Tiffany are co-founders of the Orr Foundation, which focuses on education and supporting students. His book is called "When Your Back's Against the Wall: Fame, Football, and Lessons Learned Through a Lifetime of Adversity." and is out now. Tanya J. Powers, Fox News. From the Fox News Podcasts Network. I'm Ben Domenech, Fox News contributor and editor of the Transom.com daily newsletter. And I'm inviting you to join a conversation every week. It's the Ben Domenech Podcast. Subscribe and listen now by going to foxnewspodcasts.com. Subscribe to this podcast at foxnewspodcasts.com. It's time for your Fox News commentary. Tommy Lahren. What's on your mind? For months, I've known the Biden White House worked with big tech and specifically Facebook to censor and reduce my presence on social media. But it's even worse than I thought. According to newly acquired Facebook notes finally handed over to House Judiciary, it is confirmed the White House asked Facebook if the platform would be able to tweak the algorithm so as to increase visibility for outlets such as the New York Times and decrease the presence of, yep, Tommy Lahren. This is not just censorship. This is big government coercing Facebook to to make me less visible to those who knowingly and voluntarily follow me and to adjust the algorithm. This isn't for discussing COVID vaccine efficacy or COVID vaccine side effects. This is over me saying I personally won't get the vaccine. This is censorship, full on, full communist censorship. I'm Tommy Laren. 
You've been listening to the Fox News Rundown. And now, stay up to date by subscribing to this podcast at foxnewspodcasts.com. Listen ad-free on Fox News Podcasts Plus on Apple Podcasts. And Prime members can listen to the show ad-free on Amazon Music. And for up-to-the-minute news, go to foxnews.com. Precise, personal, powerful. Is America's weather team in the palm of your hands? Get Fox weather updates throughout your busy day, every day. Subscribe and listen now at foxnewspodcasts.com or wherever you get your podcasts.